Welcome to a Matter of Life and Film podcast. I'm Emilia Rolovich and I'm back with Chief Film Critic at The Guardian, Peter Bradshaw. Last episode we discussed the 70s classic The Exorcist and the new Exorcist Believer film. This time we're back in the 70s with Report to the Commissioner and we hope you enjoy this episode. So now we're going to talk about a different 70s film, and that would be Report to the Commissioner. Yes. And that was chosen by Peter. And it's interesting. It's a bit mysterious, not mysterious, but I was curious because I Googled it and I thought, has Peter written about it before? I even pulled out your book and I was like, is it in here? And I was no. like, no. So I thought, okay, maybe is it because you've never written about this before? Yeah, you want to talk about it? Partly. Yeah. I know what you mean. I raise it with people and some people go, oh, wow, yeah, report to the commissioner. And we're almost, the people who've seen it go, yeah, I've seen it. Isn't it weird? Isn't this strange? No, I haven't written about it yet. I must try to find an excuse. Maybe I'm going to campaign for it to be re-released or given a 4K restoration so that I have an excuse to write about it. For those who don't know about it, or even those who have, this is a relatively unknown movie from the raunchy, sleazy, seedy world of New York City. It is a a cop drama set largely in Manhattan, directed by Milton Katselis, who is a a director really I know really still really don't know anything about. I guess a footnote in his life. He was a, a lifelong Scientologist. He did a lot of work on the stage and in the movies. And he was portrayed by James Franco, in James Franco's own biopic of Sal Mineo called Sal. That's really the sum total of what I know about Milton Katselis, but uh, he created what I think it is a kind of misunderstood, undernoticed gem of mid-70s New York cinema. And it is a cop drama with a really, really interesting premise. It's about a brilliant young female cop who goes undercover in order to get close to a high-profile, big-wheel drug dealer, played by Tony King in New York. And in order to bolster her cover, because she's an undercover cop, she has to pretend to be this guy's... He's a person of colour, she's white. She has to pretend to be this sort of swinging, hippie chick who thinks it's cool to be his old lady, to use a ghastly phrase from the 70s, which I've never heard any time ever again. She's literally going to move in with him and become effectively his wife in order to compile enough evidence for them to get a conviction in a court of law. And this is where the second half, this rather brilliant plot comes in, almost sort of existential crisis of being an undercover cop. And we've all watched movies about undercover cops having existential crises. God knows. Usually what happens is the cops go undercover and they think, they realise, actually, I'm having a better time in my life pretending to be a villain than I am actually as a theoretically a good person. Whereas report to the commissioner is actually much more complicated than that. What happens is that another male cop who is this diffident, rather kind of woolly, long-haired liberal, not too far from Serpico in a way, he is given the job really just to keep him happy of investigating this woman purely to bolster her cover. And the commanding officers in the station house don't even tell him, look, this isn't really happening. He's just given this job just to keep him busy. And so he is on the trail of this woman, investigating this woman, not realising that she is on his side. 
and it is to lead to disaster. And it is a very complicated, I think almost literary situation. I can imagine an author like uh, Bernard Malamud or Philip Roth writing this as a short story, in a way, about the police. Or maybe a more conventional genre writer. I can imagine sort of Elmore Leonard being interested in it. It's got the tastiest cast. I mean, it's got a fantastic cast. Yafet Koto plays one of the cops, and Yafet Koto is a fantastic actor. He's always brilliant. He was brilliant in Live and Let Die a few years before this came out, and he's brilliant in the report to the commissioner. Michael Moriarty plays the undercover cop who is very naive and silly. The undercover female detective is Susan Blakely. Then there's Hector Elizondo, who is another amazing actor who kind of came to prominence in the sort of Pretty Woman movies. He's basically somebody who you recognise from then. Incredibly, Bob Balaban, who is, again, a very distinguished figure from the stage and screen, he plays a young kind of hippie disabled beggar. This movie has got such an embarrassment of riches that you've got these amazing names in small parts. Again, incredibly, Richard Gere, a young Richard Gere, who must have been in his, I think, in his early 20s, pops up as a pimp in this outrageous pimp outfit. I mean, the movie is almost worth renting or seeing purely for the exquisite pleasure of seeing Richard Gere turn up, smirking his way through this role. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite jarring. I mean, to be honest, he was the only person in the cast I did recognise. I mean, sorry, that's speaking to my ignorance of not okay, knowing. Well, I don't know, maybe it's just everyone looked older back then. There's this kind of like phenomenon that when you look at People who are like in their 20s and their 70s, they feel older than like people in their 20s now. Right. Is that just me? Being... No, maybe. <laughs> maybe everybody's more scuffed up. Everybody has to be more scuffed up. Yeah, maybe, because I guess the... So, Bo Lockley is his name. Yeah. He is like this new, fresh-faced person in the force. Although he looks quite world-weary still, yeah. even though maybe less so than the other cops. He's supposed to be this hopeful guy. He wants to bring this idealistic sort of sense of judgment he does i mean he wants to bring he wants to bring idealism he wants to bring a kind of moral judgment which exists independently of the cop's absolute cynicism and the part of what's so brilliant about this film is that his idealism is completely trumped right away he has no idea what's going on he is used and abused absolutely uh even though yafet koto's character crunch is kind of sympathetic to him and who's you know he kind of cuts him a little bit of a break and kind of kind of takes pity on him in a way and yet he is completely used in this brilliant way it doesn't really advance the plot nothing is really achieved and what happens is that there's an, an amazing chase scene again i'd love to see this film on the big screen so that i could savor this staggering gonzo chase scene in the middle of times square which seemed to have shot with real people around, and a lot of people... I read Roger Ebert when he saw the film. He said he, di he didn't like it because he thought that everybody was kind of looking at the camera mm. and thinking, oh, it's a movie shoot. And now my attitude, I think a lot of people's attitudes now, is completely different. They just think, yeah. so what if people are looking at the camera? It's amazing what they've done. Now, I don't know, does anybody get away with shooting? What was this extraordinary gonzo scene where this guy is literally in his pants he's mm. half naked running through the streets of new york and is finally cornered in an elevator on Saks fifth avenue and then there's a long very 70s face-off scene a kind of very claustrophobic scene where the cop and the drug dealer 
are holed up in this elevator car and the cops are ready to go in for a shootout and you realise, are they going to have to make common cause? They've really got the guns turned on each other like something out of Reservoir Dogs. It's absolutely amazing. I hate to overuse this word, but it's got that gonzo over-the-top feel, which I never see anymore, especially people shooting in New York. I don't know, there's not, there's not the same kind of Wild West feel, but maybe it was something about... Maybe 70s New York. New York and 70s New York was like that anyway that you could get away with that in the way that you could get away with more crime you could get away with guerrilla filming because you could get away with real crime in New York and it was a totally different city sadly to say I'm old enough to remember being there when it was like that yeah in terms of the cinematography as well it has that kind of rough edged yeah. almost documentary like yeah. feel very sort of 70s as well I just but, gasped you know. when you when the camera comes out and you yeah. see Times Square, oh my God, it's Times Square, but not simply the kind of slightly sort of cliched view of Times Square, oh, that it's scuzzy and porny and horrible. Of course it is all that thing, but it's also a place where ordinary people have to work and go on their lunch hour. Yeah. And Katselis and his crew just crash into the middle of it with their actors, one of whom has to be in his pants in the middle of the working day. Absolutely incredible. Another thing I love about New York movies is the way that, Sound recording is totally different now. Sound recording, digital sound recording, is much more evolved and much clearer. They can focus on what they want to record much more easily now. And it brings it into much sharper focus. Whereas in those days, rightly or wrongly, or by accident or by design, they kind of summoned up the ambient sound of extraneous noise much more in, in the 70s. So you had that sound that you associate with the 70s, which is the distant wailing and honking sound in the background. You could be in the middle of somebody's apartment, and yet there's always some honk, honk in the background, which you never get now. There's additional dialogue recording. Things can be fixed in post-production. Everything is much cleaner and sharper and digital now. Whereas in those days, there was yeah. no such thing in fixing it in post. You, you recorded it then and there. And if there was a sort of honking sound in the background, you just kind of lived with it. And I think it's so great. You can just inhale it and feel it on your fingertips, the New York City. I, I really, really want to find somebody who can find a... I don't know, someone like, I suppose, someone like Tarantino in the new Beverly Cinema in Los Angeles that presumably has already done it. I mean, I'm so naive, obviously. Well, somebody. If, if he's listening, maybe, yeah, you know, Quentin, or someone at the BFI. Yeah, or Quentin or a, or a kind of savant genius like Edgar Wright or something like that. I mean, Edgar undoubtedly knows every millimetre of report to the commissioner. Someone like him could mastermind a revival. Yeah, I mean, it could happen. It you could happen. What one it of our have... two listeners could yes, be. One... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if one of our two listeners could do something about this, I would be very, very grateful indeed. Thank you very much. But yeah, I like that very 70s rough quality it has. And I mean, not to be so cliche, but I guess a big theme in the 70s was not trusting organisations. Yeah. In the wake of Watergate, this looks at all the information that is hidden or just not told as in he goes on this mission to look for this girl he doesn't know the inner complexities and how deep the lead is buried so there's a lot of him almost being an innocent victim being swirled around in this and so i guess in the end his idealistic wanting to bring good moral values did it pay off i mean you could probably guess it's a 70s gritty film you know oh it's pure i mean watergate was in the wind for years i mean we say watergate but 
you know, movies take a long time to be conceived and made. Maybe almost that feeling preceded Watergate in a way, a kind of a countercultural sense that the man was trying to pull the wool out of her eyes. But the great thing about this is that you've got this hero in a way. He's a victim of this, but the report that is in the title is being kind of confected. And that's part of the great, almost the mule kick of irony of this is that the report in the title isn't going to be delivering the truth in the way that the action of the film is. The report is the cover-up. The report is the lie that the authorities are going to confect to make sure that nobody understands the truth of what we are about to see in the film. And that's what I think is so fascinating about it. It's very complicated. It's a very sophisticated film, although it's amazing to think of it being sophisticated because, in a way, it's completely unsophisticated. And there are these amazing scenes where, like the scenes in, let's say, The French Connection or a film like that, which show the cops roughing people up, beating the shit out of people. And that's not... It's not presented to us as, oh, my God, the police are corrupt. That's, it's, a, it's an example of, this is what the streets are like. And if you don't like it, then you must be pretty naive. And that's the same, like Scorsese's Mean Streets, mm -hmm. in a way. That's the locale, that's almost the whole rationale. These are the streets, they are mean. There's no point in you whining about it any more than if you go to a Western starting to complain about the wildness of the Wild West. That's the point of them. Of course they're mean, uh, and you've got to kind of go with it in a way. So the sensibility is very different. I mean, now the idea of police corruption, particularly a female officer being betrayed or let down by male officers, the meaning, the significance of that would be completely different now. Whereas in those days, it's just overlaid. It's part of the crosstown traffic of irony and chaos that the film just sits in. But it's also done with such brio and such chutzpah. All the brushstrokes of this movie are laid down with such vigour it's brilliant. It's absolutely incredible. And as I say, the difference between the intimate shots within the station house and the sudden explosion of the streetscape scenes, again, I don't know, did anybody do that anymore in the city? I don't know. Perhaps when it's late at night in some area where there's less people, I mean, I'm yes. not sure. I mean, yeah. Times Square... Possibly not. Uh, Times Square nowadays, people, when you see shots <laughs> in Times Square, I think there's maybe a documentary to be made about the changing nature of Times Square in the movies. But whenever you see a shot of Times Square, people are now obsessed. But what happens is the camera is shot from a low angle position up to the big video billboards, like in Piccadilly Circus, in a way. And that's what it's about, is the blandness of it. You, you see shots for Eminem or uh, Harry Potter or the latest kind of slightly bland Broadway musical or something like that. That's what it's about. It's almost not about the physical quiddity, if I can put it that way, of the actual buildings themselves. It's about media presentation. That's basically, that is what Times Square is about now. Uh, then it wasn't about that. It was a genuine thoroughfare. Of course, it used to be a seedy place, but it was also a real place with real people and people going about their business. Now it's almost like a big tourist landmark. As I say, the angle is upwards, almost like the very, very 
cliched shot that begins everything in Los Angeles. You bring a shot of Rodeo Drive and an upward shot of the palm trees either side of the shot. And that's an incredibly cliched thing. But that's what Times Square is now. Whereas in those days, in the era of report to the commissioner, Times Square is a place where things could actually happen. Real things are going to happen in Times Square. Whereas in modern day New York City movies, nothing actually happens in Times Square. It's an establishing shot where you get to see the commercialness of yeah. the modern city. You get to see what product placement exactly, exactly, in the film. Exactly, exactly. You know. exactly. <laughs> Exciting. So, I mean, this was my first time watching this film. I enjoyed it. I think for you, this feels like a sort of five-star film for you or something. I or just kind of, something I, that you personally... It's very personal. I'm not sure okay, whether okay. I would say, but I think it is... Yeah. I think it's a fascinating movie because uh, maybe I'm a little bit ironised in my attitude towards it, but I certainly think it has that kind of almost primitivist view, which I rightly or wrongly associate with 70s New York filmmaking, which is so crass and so un, a sort of unselfconsciousness to it, but also a lie to something which I genuinely think is a very interesting and sophisticated idea, a very almost sort of zen metaphysical idea of what happens when we go undercover and then yeah. something very bad happens... At the time, people liked the much more uh, conventional tension and suspense of holding up in the uh, elevator. But I don't think that's the most interesting part of it. In terms okay. of pure action, mm. I think the chase scene through Times Square is, is yeah. gonzo and absolutely great. The kind of, uh, you know, people sweating, countdown sort of stuff. Closer to the taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. It's not my favourite part of the favorite. movie. Oh, OK. But, a bit, bit controversial. Yeah, I don't know. What did you think? No, I really like the lift or elevator lift yeah. scene no i did like the lift scene because Bo in his work with the other members of the force i mean he has his partner with him but they don't really seem to connect that much or there's no, no kind of humanity in it but then and i'm not saying the drug dealer was like feeling sorry for him but they come to this agreement which benefits both of them which is a bit more like maybe rational than everything that's come before they have this plan to get both of them out because they have this feeling that basically the police just want to get rid of both of them they start putting like gas in the lift or something yeah. and then they realize that they're both in this situation and maybe their lives aren't really valuable Bo, who's in the police force he realizes that it will be more convenient for him to not survive quite dark at the end there's that horrible horrible scene at the end which i think is a little bit crass again no spoilers but he doesn't quite realize what's happening he's profoundly traumatized by everything that he's done he ends up in custody not realizing exactly what's happened he's been used and abused and again it taps into what you were talking about that post watergate sense of or even post JFK assassination sense that something is happening behind our backs. We can all understand it. We can all sympathise because we are all being uh, manipulated by the authorities. They are doing something behind our backs and we don't understand. There's a whole level of truth beyond what we are permitted to discover. Now, that is something which the movie plays with and sort of holds out in front of us. And at the very end, there's this almost happy ending, which is snatched away and we get this brutal, horrible ending, which I think is, again, it's part of this sort of gonzo thing that the, the movie hits us with something horrible and we just have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Again, I like it because it's 
rough and ready. And again, it's not the sort of chat GPT school of filmmaking. It's sort of ghastly and raw and, again, almost primitivist in that it just punches you in the nose with something horrible and that's it, we're out. Credits. That's part of what I love about this film. Again, I'm not saying it's a masterpiece. It's not like... But you feel it, like it doesn't get talked about as... It doesn't you know, get talked about really. it. I think it's something which would be a brilliant context for if you watch a movie like, say, again, any of Scorsese's movies of that period of, of Mean Streets or Taxi Driver, which occupy the same New York space of something crepuscular and infernal and horrible, but something which treats the, the horror of the streets as something normal. We just learn to live it as if hell exists on the same level uh, as planet Earth. And we've just, we've just normalised it. We've come to terms with it. There is this horrible place which we can go in and out of and more or less not be affected by. But there are these horrible places uh, which still exist, of course, in many cities in the world. Let's not be naive. New York has been cleaned up, but many cities, of course, haven't. And there are parts of New York that, that haven't. But... That is a kind of uh, an awareness of something horrible, which, again, we've slightly lost. I always think it's a funny moment in Taxi Driver where Travis Bickle says that he's so rattled and so careless without fear that he'll go to anywhere in New York, even Brooklyn. And it always makes you laugh. I think Brooklyn is absolutely the most horrible part of it. And, of course, now it's a place nice. of hipster coffee stores mm. and, uh, you know, people sitting around journaling in their moleskin diaries. But when Travis was mm. around, it was a place where you could be beaten up or shot, of course. Maybe you'd have to make a movie in, you know, a movie like The City of God, the favelas of Rio de Janeiro, maybe the nearest thing now to New York City. I mean, I, I was in a favela in Brazil. I remember thinking, A, I was thinking... This doesn't seem so bad, but everybody who was with me just said, please don't relax for a moment. <laughs> don't you feel don't, too safe. Don't feel too safe. We, you know, we're taking you just because you want to come here, but any moment now, don't look as you can get, people get shot like this. And mm. I remember thinking, oh, come on, don't be ridiculous. This looks fine. But they were really, really tense with me when I went to, this was the Rio de Janeiro Film Festival. But of course, you know, we had to go to... <laughs> Sounds dangerous. We, we had to, it is, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful city. It's a wonderful festival, actually. We went to one of the biggest festivals, the Alamao Favela. Going to Rio, the juxtaposition of the favelas up in the mountains and the great wealth, because there are very rich people in, in Rio de Janeiro. That's the nearest thing I think I've experienced to the weird world of 70s New York. Okay, great. Well, take note if anyone wants to shoot some kind of yeah, gorilla film. exactly. Uh, in, in the style of 70s gritty crime film, Rio de Janeiro could be the place for you. Maybe they're a bit yeah. more loose on filming. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. You can probably shoot on the new iPhone. Amazing, amazing shots with your new iPhone. Or just create like an AI generator. Yeah, um, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Thank you for listening to A Matter of Life and Film podcast. We will be back with a new episode at some point, probably. In the meantime, you can give us a follow, rate our podcast and follow us on Instagram at A Matter of Life and Film.